Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Uh, very excited to start uh, the new year. 2020 is going to be uh, a rocking new year for, uh, for all of us, I'm sure. And uh, a big part of that, I think, is tapping into what's going on in the world around us. And one of the things that is going on is there's a new book coming out. It's called Fanocracy. Uh, we have the author of uh, Fanocracy, David Nierman Scott, here with us on Trending in Education. David is a marketing strategist, entrepreneur, and advisor to emerging companies, a VC strategic partner. He's a best-selling author of 10 books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR. Uh, Fanocracy, which we just discussed, is due to drop like it's hot on January 7th. We're here to talk about it. David, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Um, thanks for the introduction. And it strikes me that it's not only the beginning of a new year, it's the beginning of a new decade, which is pretty exciting, too. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, you think not just in a one-year uh, time horizon, it also opens up a 10-year uh, time horizon. I think it does. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, you know, uh, we like to make predictions. Uh, I'm hoping to uh, make a living on predictions for the next year and a half. That's what I'm thinking. So, nice. uh, so one of those predictions, though, I think is that uh, the next 10 years, uh, fans are going to be a big part of, uh, of everything. So I, I think uh, you're, you're on to something with this uh, phenocracy uh, idea. And uh, maybe just to start, can you tell us a little bit about uh, phanocracy? What does the word mean? Uh, I believe it's, I believe it's a neologism. Uh, I believe you have coined this word. Is that correct? Um, it it was used a little bit here and there, um, so I didn't actually uh, coin it Got as it. in as in I was the first person to use it. But when I came up with the word, I thought I had coined it until ah, I found. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, no one's ever done a book with that title. I own the URL. It's like, there's yeah. just a few random, you know, there were like a dozen random Google listings for it. So the idea of a fanocracy is when fans rule. It's, yes. the, idea, it's the idea of a true human connection. And, you know, getting to your pr prediction thing, um, I've been pretty good at spotting some predictions um, of the last couple decades. Yes. So entering the 2000s, what I noticed is that marketing on the web is not about banner advertising, which is what everyone said it was back then, mm -hmm. 1999 or so, that transition. I said, no, it's about content. It's about publishing mm -hmm. information. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about all kinds of creation of content. And I was absolutely right about that. Mm -hmm. My book, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, was, is arguably the best-selling marketing book of that decade. Yes. Of the, de of the of the zeros. Yes. Uh, the uh, aughts, so right? The aughts, which the never aughts. quite took on. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 400,000 yeah. copies in English. It's in 29 languages. And then in, in the teens, I saw another trend. Um, and that was the trend around real-time communications on the web. Um, mm. I don't know if you remember this, but Google did not index in real time until 10 years ago. Mm. Um, if you updated a blog post or uh, a website, Google took uh, a whole month sometimes to wow. to surface that new content uh, and then about 10 years ago they went real time at the same time twitter was starting to take off and so and other social networks so i identified this idea that that we are now entering an era of real-time communications interesting um, yeah. and what i see what i see us entering now 
is I think that the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications mm -hmm. at a time when, you know, we're really hungry for a, a true human connection. You know, the whole yep. online world has become polarizing. Um, you know, people are screaming fake news. There's, mm. there's, there's so much tribalism yep. in the in negative related tribalism on the web where politically and socially people are, 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 you know, going into one group and not coming out of it. So yeah, yeah. I think we're entering an era of a kinder, gentler, more human approach to engagement, mm. both online and offline. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the original ideas around fanocracy birthed um, mm -hmm. about five years ago when I was thinking about this. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that's where we're heading in this ne next decade of the 20s. That's great. I mean, it's great to hear uh, some hopefulness uh, yeah. heading into the next uh, 10 years, because I think lots of times, uh, maybe maybe around the, the, the climate crisis and some of these mm -hmm. other things that like people are very uh, anxious and uh, sort of like gravitate towards the negative frames around the next yes. 10 years. Um, and uh, that can be dangerous. I think if you don't, if we don't open up the possibility of where the real tremendous positivity will be, you know, like even if you think about um, the progress that's been made around, uh, you know, eliminating some diseases and like getting more people access to clean water, you know, like very um, sort of, like sort of elevating um, capabilities are emerging. And mm -hmm. uh, I think it's very easy to, to sort of think about the negative frame, which obviously we do need to understand, you know? Yeah, well, I think so, I think so many people when they go negative, I mean, just are un, incapable of understanding the other side's opinion. And it, yeah. just, it just become, it becomes a zero sum game in mm -hmm. people's minds, which it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I'm hoping I'm hopeful, truly hopeful that with a true, genuine, more human connection that um, that things will emerge on the other end and be yeah. much more positive going forward. Yeah. And I, I, ju I do think that the pendulum has swung too far. And, and right. that's inevitable. That's inevitable right. that that things go too far in one direction, they tend to swing back. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, it's nice to hear that too, from someone who's made his career in marketing uh, to understand that, um, you know, I, I think one of the knocks on marketing that's interesting is, you know, it is sort of surface and lacks, you know, uh, maybe some depth or some substance to it. Uh, maybe moving that into sort of the conversation of uh, fanocracy, even the idea of a fan. Um, I'd love you to flesh that out a little bit more because um, it is a very um, sort of positive, uh, like affirmational, um, idea of fandom yeah um, and i'd love to hear you talk a little more about uh how you think you know what is a fan so thank you yeah so um this idea of fandom and what i call a fanocracy was really birthed as i was thinking long and hard over the last few years about how i'm a massive fan of th of things mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of live music. I'm a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts, 790 live shows in my life. Of yeah, all just different, to, of all just different to jump bands. in real quick, uh, you know, our, our listeners can't see this, but I can see your tie-dye on underneath your buttoned-up huh. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. shirt and, and your vest, too. So, like, but there is, 
you know, it gets cold in New England, but I'm saying I can see, uh, you have an eyewitness to, uh, <laughs> to a genuine Grateful Dead uh, shirt. Not to mention there is a, uh, is that a steely behind you? Yeah, uh, yes, yes. Grateful Dead Wall of Fame. Oh my goodness. Me. Yes, yes. So uh, we're painting a, painting a picture to our podcast listeners. Apologies. I just wanted to, I wanted to verify <laughs> your bona fides. There. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Well, 75 Grateful Dead concerts. Um, I actually wrote a book called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead about 10 years ago. But I was thinking about this idea of how strong this idea of fandom is for me, this idea idea of what I call fanocracy. And what I really came around to is it's about a true, genuine human connection, like we were talking about earlier. Yes, I love going to Grateful Dead concerts. I love the music. But what I really love about it is I'm part of a tribe. I'm mm -hmm. part of a group of like-minded people. Um, I'm among my best friends because I've got a, a group of people who we go to shows together. Yeah. Um, and in 2019, my buddies and I went to seven Grateful Dead concerts um, wow. in, one, yeah. in, one, in one year, three in mm -hmm. Mexico and four here in the U.S. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and so I could go up to anybody in that audience, never having never met them before, and have something in common, be able to strike up a conversation instantly. Yeah. We're part of the same group. So yeah. I was thinking about how you can apply mm -hmm. those ideas to all kinds of different um, businesses, nonprofits, education, mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of different things. And, it, and I wanted to research and see if it's possible. And it absolutely positively is. Yeah. One of my favorite examples you know, to get at your question about marketing comes from an organization called Haggerty Insurance. And so um, I love the idea of Haggerty Insurance because they've built a massive fandom around a product category that everybody hates, and that's auto insurance. Everybody hates auto insurance. And when I spoke with McKeel Haggerty, the founder and CEO of Haggerty Insurance, he said, David, everyone hates my business. So I can't market like everybody else in my business. And that sort of gets at your question, Mike, about, about you know, marketers and marketing. And you know, most of marketing is around a couple of things. Number one, um, you know, talking about your products and services over and over and over and over again. But right. nobody really cares. Um, the other things uh, that marketers can sometimes do is become a low cost provider um, and say, all right, if I'm the cheapest, then I'll be able to get some business. Right. Um, and then the other thing marketers do, which is, you know, can be really annoying is um, just spend more money on advertising than anybody right. else. Right. Um, and so what McKeel Haggerty told me, he says, David, I can't be the low cost provider. I just don't want to do that. I don't want to like just talk about auto insurance because everyone hates it. So I can't right. do whatever, I can't do what people do there. And I don't want to spend the kind of money that my competitors who like have advertisements with geckos or lizards or whatever the hell they are. I can't, I can't compete in that way either. Right. So what McKeel Haggerty did was he went out and expressly challenged his business to build fans. Right. Now what's interesting is they focus on classic car auto insurance. So right. they decided to specialize and they go to over a hundred classic car events a year in North America. So they're together with people who are already fans of classic cars. Right. And Mikhail Haggerty told me, I didn't have to invent the passion for classic cars. All right. I had to do is tap into it. Mm -hmm. And so they also have a YouTube channel with uh, a million subscribers. They right. have a Haggerty Drivers Club with 650,000 members. Mm -hmm. 
And what's fascinating to me is that they've built a tribe of people who are fans of an insurance of, of auto insurance company, yeah. Yeah. A, a category that everybody hates. Right, right. And they did it. They did it mm-hmm. by creating a more human connection mm-hmm. and not doing the traditional marketing that so yeah. many other companies are doing. Um, they are now the largest classic car auto insurance company in the world, and they'll mm-hmm. grow by 200,000 new customers in the coming year. Um, uh, and it's just a fabulous success story. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, McKeel Haggerty says it's all about building fans. And I'm right. a fan. I have a 1973 Land Rover, which is nice. how I, and, and, and Haggerty has been insuring it since 2005. That's how is I learned that, about it. Which side that. is the steering wheel? On? Uh, it's on the, uh, uh, on the American side. Okay. It was okay, actually uh, an, a, an import into this country back in 1973. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and so I'm a fan of Haggerty, you know, I, yeah. I had, I had to re up my insurance a couple of months ago and I was happy to pay that bill. It didn't, right, right. it didn't feel like a chore. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's this idea of fandom and mm-hmm. it's tying some of the ideas around what you're a fan of because you're really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. For me, for like Grateful Dead and, and and whatnot, but also and then and then applying those same ideas to any business. And we've got yeah. a um, uh, we've got a prescription of ten different um, ways that people can build fans based on uh, an extensive amount of research that my daughter did with me. My right. daughter, my daughter Reiko is now twenty six years old. She's my co author on Fanocracy, mm-hmm. um, and it was fun working with her because. She's a millennial uh, right. woman. Um, my wife's Japanese, so my daughter's mixed race. She's a mm-hmm. neuroscientist. She did a neuroscience degree at Columbia University and now is yeah. in her final year of medical school. So, mm-hmm. uh, And she's a huge Harry Potter fan, and she's a, a fan of going to Comic-Con. She gets dressed up and cosplays. Right. So, so we have the same idea about fandom, but we come at it from an utterly different perspective. Um, a millennial woman you know, versus a middle-aged white guy. Uh, and, and so, and so it, it really is interesting that these ideas apply right. over all kinds of different ways to grow fans that yeah. apply to all kinds of different people and different learning styles and so yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. No, I really love the uh, intergenerational uh, aspect of the perspective, because uh, that's something we have talked about a bunch on this show is, uh, um, you know, research that I've read has said that, you know, we're becoming increasingly uh, segregated by age. Mm. Uh, so it is, I think fandom it frequently is a, a way to cut across dimensions. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that where, uh, you know, I attended my first uh, NFL game uh, for the Giants recently. And nice. uh, and that was, you know, I've been a lifetime fan, but I hadn't actually been to the stadium. And uh, it just the level of like deep catalog understanding we all had of every historic event in Giants history. Mm. Um, I hadn't really felt that way. Um, you know, I, I couldn't really, aside from when I, uh, I, I tend to go to Jazz Fest uh, in New Orleans regularly, which is the other place that I hadn't really reflected on it until I was preparing uh, to to talk with you, David. But uh, you know, those are probably my biggest um, sort of fan things. Yeah. To really connect into, and um, 
I love that you were able to sort of identify that as something that is not to a particular uh, identity or age or sort of insert way of uh, grouping people, like being a fan and connecting to these sort of like deep, um, almost like primal rooting interests and engaging in uh, the collective shared experience of we all care about this thing a lot. Yes. It's part of what it is to be human, you know? It, it, it is. It, it absolutely is. And interestingly, that was something that we really, really wanted to dig into is the, um, the, the, what, how this is rooted in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we actually spoke with a number of neuro neuroscientists about what's going on in the brain when you become a fan of something. And yeah. in particular, what we wanted to look at is how you relate to other people as you're engaging as a fan. So, so I go to a Grateful Dead concert. My daughter is talking with her friends about Harry Potter. You're going to the uh, Giants game, right? It's, you're, you're with people. And um, it turns out that it's hardwired in our brains as a survival technique to understand around of the people around us who's part of our own tribe and therefore a positive connection and who potentially is a it uh, is not um, part of our tribe and therefore a potential enemy therefore maybe we yeah. need to kick in our fight or flight mode and that right, is right. that's a natural part of our brain it's part right. of neuroscience tells us mm -hmm. that so yeah there's one neuroscientist, his name is Edward T. Hall, identified the idea of different levels of proximity. So further than about 20 feet away is called public space. And our brains do not track people in public space. We know they're there, but we don't right. tr actively track them. Inside of 20 feet to about four feet is called social space. And inside of four feet is called personal space. Hmm. And with social space, once you enter approximately 20 feet away, uh, we begin to track people who get that close to us because we need to know, are they part of our tribe? Or are they not right. part of our tribe? So that sure. means if you walk into a crowded room, um, you can't help it. It's hardwired. Your brain begins to track those people who are in that room mm. to understand if you know them or not. Um, mm -hmm. Then inside of four feet, is cocktail party distance. If you're, if you know and trust the people who you're with at cocktail party distance, like literally at a cocktail party, yeah. that's an incredibly positive human connection, human emotions. Um, but if you get into a crowded subway in New York City and you don't know those people yes, or, a or a crowded elevator, you yeah. can't help but feel nervous because your brain is firing and saying, hey, I need to worry about these people. They're not part of my tribe. Maybe they're going to harm me. Mm -hmm. And um, and so what does that mean for us um, as we're building businesses? What does it mean for us as we're teaching? What does it mean for us in the ways that we interact with other people? Well, it's, it simply means the closer you get to someone, the more powerful the human connections. As you teach, can you get close, literally physically closer mm -hmm. to people? Yes. Um, as you do that. And I'll give you an example in my own world. I present at conferences all over the world. Um, you know, the, the smaller conferences might have 250 people. The bigger ones I'm going to be speaking in about two weeks at Tony Robbins Business Mastery, which is 2,500 people. It's mm -hmm. a big audience. Yeah. Uh, now, here's the interesting thing about this is um, that 
if I get in close physical proximity with some of the people in the audience, that becomes a very positive human connection with those people that I get close to. And I try to make a point as I, and I, I think of myself as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I, I am up there presenting, but I feel like I'm teaching the ideas of fanocracy. I'm teaching yeah. the ideas of effective marketing. Yeah. Um, and so I don't just stay on the stage, which is public space further than 20 feet away. Yeah. I come down into the audience I'm together with the people in the audience. Yeah. I might ask somebody a question and hand them a microphone. So I'm now in their personal space inside of four feet. Right. Um, and I'm purposely doing that because I want to be in close physical proximity. But here's where it gets really interesting. Another aspect of neuroscience called mirror neurons. Yeah. Mirror neurons are the parts of our brain, the brains that fire when we see somebody do something as if we're doing it ourselves. Right. Sometimes even just hearing somebody doing something is enough for us to have our brain fire as if we were doing that ourselves. Yes, you hear about uh, mirror neurons a lot uh, when people are critical of like violent uh, video games and yes. sort of the influence of seeing behavior sort of Yeah, 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 it does come up. It does yeah. it does come up there. Yeah, because what's happening is your brain is firing as if you're shooting that gun. Right. Um, but let me demonstrate something here for you. Uh, you'll see it on video and everyone else will hear it. Um, but I'm, I think you might have the same experience that Mike is going to have. I'm holding a lemon and a slice of lemon in my hands. Mm. Um, now, if I take a bite of this lemon, it's an incredibly powerful thing going on in my brain. My eyes close instinctively and my mouth puckers up. My saliva glands are doing their things. I mean, biting into a tart lemon like this is really powerful. But yeah. just by seeing me and hearing me talk about that, Mike, you might have been feeling a little oh bit God. of lemon going on in your brain. Yeah, yeah I mean, I hope our listeners, uh, I, I, got the, I got the VIP treatment because I <laughs> could see David uh, actually do this, but, uh, but he could, I, I could actually feel uh, a, the, uh, the response. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And even just listening, there's some of the listeners who are feeling that lemon on the end of the tongue. That's yeah. the power of mirror neurons. So here's what this means for education, for teaching, um, for building fans um, uh, when you're physically interacting with people. So I mentioned earlier that when I get close to people in my speeches, I might get, I might get physically close in the personal space or social space of, oh, maybe a half dozen people during the course of my speech. Right. But here's the thing, because of mirror neurons, other mm. people in the audience believe I'm getting in their personal space as well, even though I'm mm. not, because they see me do it, even yeah. if they're just seeing me do it on the video screen. Right. Um, and, and here's what it means for virtual connections. The more you can use video, um, mm. where actually you and I are now speaking to one another on a video channel, to, yeah. on top, um, the more you can use video and photographs as you virtually teach yes. cropped uh, of people of yourself cropped as if you're in the personal space. So within mm -hmm. four feet um, yeah. and looking directly at the camera, right. our brains tell us that we actually are physically connected to you. We feel as if we're next to you physically, even though you're on a screen. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why we feel we know personally a movie star or a television star. We don't know who they are. They're just an image flickering on a screen. Yeah. 
but we feel we know them because our brains tell us, our mirror neurons tell us, yes, you are in close physical proximity with this movie star. Mm -hmm. So this means that an effective use of video in teaching is really powerful. Mm -hmm. As well, an effective use of reaching out to people in their personal space mm -hmm. when you're teaching, even if it's just a couple of people in that class or that um, situation like mine, even with 2,500 people in the audience, right. people's brains fire as if you're close to them. Mm -hmm. um, so this is just one of the 10 ideas that we talk about in the book Fanocracy yeah. to build fans. But I think this one is particularly appropriate for um, the subject of your podcast, Mike, and, and maybe some of the, the people listening in might be able to use some of these ideas and how they teach and how they, they do education. Yeah, uh, I believe this is called proxemics, right? Yeah. Is that? Yeah, that's one of the one of the terms that Edward T. Hall coined. Although it never yes. really never really took people didn't really use that term. I, I remember reading a bunch of Edward T. Hall. Yeah, I discovered him uh, a long, long time ago. That's cool. It's cool when someone you were sort of I was a fan of uh, Edward T. Hall, and that's then cool. for you to uh, coincidentally bring it up, uh, super super interesting. So. Um, what about the dark side of fandom? Because uh, that was kind of, uh, you know, we've sort of skirted around it a little bit, but like there is an element uh, and uh, this is why I think live music might be a better uh, uh, outlet for fandom because uh, you're, you're less likely to get angry at people who are not fans of the show because they're not even going to be there. But like you think about something like sports or politics or uh, yeah, religion, you know, like I think some of these same... Um, neurological activity can lead to sort of the, the anger and the polarization uh, that, that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. Um, any thoughts on that? I mean, we, we did talk, we touched on it a little bit, but it does seem like there is a danger to the neuroscience that, that you were just talking about. Um, I haven't found any real danger to what I was just talking about. Um, there are, of course, elements of, of dark side, negative side, as you, as you suggest. Um, I think that um, there are um, rival sports rivalries generally are really positive things for all sides. You know, mm -hmm. I live in the Boston area. When the New York Yankees come to town, people, yeah. lo people love to hate the Yankees. Yeah. But they'd much rather go to a Yankees game some, than, a, than a game with another team. And, yep. and, you know, truth be told, almost all Boston Red Sox fans, you know, secretly like the Yankees because yeah. they're nearby. They, you know, it, and, and so... Yeah, there might be a few knuckleheads that take it too far and, you know, maybe they want to beat up somebody from the other team. But it generally is, is, is a minor thing. Yeah. Um, I think in the political world, it can be, especially in the more recent polarization has just gone really, I th again, I, I used the word pendulum before. I do think the pendulum has swung too far yeah. around the polarization in the political world in the, in the United States recently. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll probably swing back. Um, but when two people who are good friends can't sit across the table and discuss politics because they get angry at one another, I think that's gone a little bit too far. So right, right. That, 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 that is an issue. And then there's also people who feel a really strong ownership over the fandoms that they love. And that's a good, that can be a really good and healthy thing. Right. You know, when you feel as if you own 
the product or service or idea or book or movie or, or rock band that you love, um, that's a positive thing when it comes to fandom. And in fact, the owners of that, um, that product or service or idea or book or movie are best thinking that they, once they put that product or service idea or idea out there, that they no longer own it. It's now owned by the fans. That's a really important concept mm -hmm. to understand around building fans. Mm -hmm. However, however, there are some fans who take that too far. Mm -hmm. So there's been a backlash, for example, within Star Trek, uh, sorry, Star Wars fandom, where um, people um, begin to um, have a negative reaction to certain Star Wars characters in the more recent movies. Um, or for example, or for example, um, the original version of Ghostbusters was men. Mm -hmm. And then there was an, a reboot of Ghostbusters a few years ago. Um, and the stars were women. Right. And there were, there were some people who had a very, very negative approach to um, that idea that they right. felt should not ever happen. And right. that has that some in, in many ways has gone too far. Sure. But I, I actually think that those are um, minor things to think about. Yes, it happens. Sure. Uh, and yes, you need to deal with it. Um, and if you're involved, it can be awful. If you're the actor who right. per portrayed one of the characters in the female version of Ghostbusters, it, sure. it, was a, it was a bad part of your life when people were were attacking um, you, yeah, were yeah. Attacking you. Right, but right. um but in the end the fans do own what right. you put out there yeah and um and they are going to react in the way that they're going to react and and right. yes there is some negativity but you can't control the way that people react i mean right the peep the i don't remember which studio did ghostbusters but you can't then say oh you know you, you're not allowed to talk that way because right. they're the fans and that's right the way right they talk. Yeah, and I like that. I really love that point about having to let go to really unlock the power of the the fandom that you're building. Yeah, and, and really that the idea of the fanocracy is that it's ruled by the fans, you know. And and frequently, I think there's more old school. There's more of a top down sort of mindset around who are we as a brand? How do we communicate that out? And how do we keep control over our brand message? when uh you know the example of the grateful dead is 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 really interesting one there where how part of how they built that fandom is just by releasing all of that to the folks who follow it to the point that the people who follow the grateful dead feel as much a sense of ownership and connection to the brand as the members of the band themselves which i i thought that was a tremendous insight i'd love to hear you yeah no that's that. exactly that's exactly right the grateful dead unlike every other band um, of the era and every other band today um, did something unique. They allowed their fans to record the concerts. Um, you could bring professional level recording gear into the shows. They even gave you a seat if you had recording gear right behind the mixing board, which is the best place for the sound. Um, they would give you a, a power strip to plug into in, in some cases. Um, and they said, sure, why not? You know, every other band on the ticket, it says no recording allowed, no video, no audio recording allowed. The Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? And that helped to build a massive fandom. Um, and in fact, created a social network because the band said, 
The only rule we have is that you can't sell those. Initially, it was cassette tapes and later on MP3 files. Our only right. rule, you can't, you can't sell those recordings. Right. You, know, you can trade them, you can give them away, um, but no, no, um, no selling. And so there was a, a big community of people who traded those tapes. So in effect, it was a social network before Mark Zuckerberg was even born. Right. And so the idea of letting go of your work in this way um, is a really powerful thing. I'll give you another example. The word fanocracy. Um, I own the URL. As we said earlier, I didn't coin the word, but right. it's only been used a dozen or two dozen times uh, that I could find on the internet. Sure. So yep. I could very much, have, I could very well have trademarked that name. Yep. And I could have owned, owned whatever that means, Right. The, the idea of fanocracy. Yes, right. I wrote the book. Yes, I own the URL. Yes, I've talked about it now for a couple of years. I chose not to trademark it, not right. to try to assert ownership over it. I specifically did that because I want other people to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I would love it if somebody else wrote a book about fanocracy. I would love it if other people were doing speeches about fanocracy. I would love it if other people wrote white papers or did blog posts about mm -hmm. the idea of fanocracy. That's, yeah. that's great because that helps to spread the idea of what a fanocracy is. Yeah. So I purposely did not try to assert my ownership over it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's pretty counterintuitive to a lot of business people who naturally want to take the legal perspective of trying to own something. Yeah. And in fact, some cases it may not make sense to do that. Yeah, it's the you see see this trend in a lot of different places. The the movement away from command and control and mm -hmm. top down uh, structures more towards emergent uh, bottom up. Uh, you know, it seems a lot of uh, sort of the the this exponential potential of the internet and the way the global community works nowadays is more fully unleashed when you let go of top down yes. and command and control and you allow things to to emerge, which is, which is uh, super interesting. So we've established your bona fides as a, as a, as a seer of <laughs> things that are emerging. Uh, we're, we're sort of wrapping uh, up towards the end of the, our conversation, which has been uh, fantastic. Again, David, thank you. Uh, thank you for, for joining. Uh, we'd sure. love to get, get uh, some of your thoughts on uh, any, uh, any ways in which uh, fanocracy uh, may relate to broader trends you're understanding or ways or other trends that you're tracking independent of fanocracy that you think will be relevant um uh you know either in 2020 or like we said at the top you know you got we got a we got a 10-year horizon to kind of lean into a little if you're looking into your crystal ball and you're trying to understand what's uh, what's going to be different you mentioned some positivity at the top any other uh, specifics uh, you'd like to share yeah so i've been um tracking um the tremendous rise of um artificial intelligence ai mm -hmm. machine learning um and the idea of how once you begin to train a particular program or website or whatever it begins to know who you are and I think in some cases, there's very good aspects of that. But I also think there's can be some incredibly negative aspects of that. 
So um, for example, Netflix, right? If you start to use Netflix, it begins to understand the sorts of things you like. Now, when I started using Netflix, um, for whatever reason, I was on a, a, a I was bin, binge watching rock and roll documentaries. So I watched, I think I might've watched, I don't know, a half dozen or a dozen rock, rock and roll documentaries when I first became a subscriber to Netflix. Now the goddamn thing assumes that's the only thing I like. <laughs> and everything they show me is related to that. And so on one hand, it's kind of nice because it surfaces ideas for something I might like. But on the other hand, it's incredibly polarizing because what it does is it says, oh, we know who you are and here's, this is who you are. And these are the only things we're going to show you. And yes, you can get around it. You can look at other ways of trying to find Netflix um, shows that you might want to watch. Right. But, um, but I think that the rise of AI is incredibly powerful. I mean, um, the fact that on a mapping software, it can understand where you're going, how you're going to go there, what the traffic is likely to be like based on traffic from other days of the week yeah. that are similar, you right. know, and, 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 and even the weather. That's amazing. But my prediction is sort of related to what is happening. What I mentioned earlier um, at the start of the show is that as AI takes over more and more of our lives, as you go to a website and it, you know, you're interacting with a robot as, as, as opposed to a person, right. um, a lot of that's really powerful, but it means that the more true and genuine human connection that a company can offer Right. Literally, literally person to person, mm -hmm. um, that will be a competitive advantage in a world of AI. So I think yeah, yeah. I think the 2020s will bring more automation, more AI, more robots. But I also think it will reward those who have a genuine connection. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting. It, it reminds me of uh, sort of the difference between a zero, a non-zero sum game versus a zero sum yeah. game. You know, like so, yeah. AI will be accomplishing new and untold things which will be wonderful on the positive side but again uh that will free up humanity to be better uh, i think that's and, right yeah 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 so uh so there you there you go and uh any thoughts how that might relate to teaching you talked a little bit about uh fanocracy and uh you know trying to get into that uh that personal uh sort of intimate zone uh on video any other thoughts uh, just around uh, learning and education and as it, as, as it relates to fanocracy as, as we're wrapping up? I've, I've um, really been enjoying creating I have, uh, some of my own online learning programs that I've worked on. Mm. Um, and uh, and I, I like the idea of being able to do videos, again, cropped as if you're about four feet from the camera, looking directly at the camera, talking directly to the student yep. uh, who's on the other side. That's incredibly powerful stuff. And I think we're just scratching the surface on what's pops possible there. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think that there's going to be big opportunities for combinations of both virtual and physical learning where, um, where the combinations are, what are, are what's powerful. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and I've done a bunch of that myself and I find it really cool. You know, I speak at the Tony Robbins business mastery events every, uh, couple times a year, 2,500 people typically go. So I'm teaching from the stage, but then I offer a program where people can buy, a, um, a series of videos. It's called mm-hmm. new marketing mastery where they can, um, they can then have me teach them much more in depth than I can from the stage yeah. um, through videos and, and, uh, and it's cropped in that way as if I'm talking mm. directly to those people. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting just to think about even the, 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 the way the virtual sort of replicates the physical and yeah. how that triggers the, the neuro, neuroscience behind it. That's exactly uh, right. Really fascinating stuff. So, uh, so as we're wrapping up, David, what's the best place for if folks are interested in any and all of this, and uh, hopefully they are, what's the best uh, place or places for them to go? So we have a great website, my daughter Reiko and I at www.fanocracy.com. There's videos, there's infographics, PDF documents you can download, um, no registration, all of it free. Um, and then um, on the social networks, such as Twitter and others, I'm DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. And I am the only David Meerman Scott in the world. So if you Google me, you will find me. Nice. Often, uh, often imitated, never duplicated. Uh, David Meerman Scott, uh, author of Fanocracy. Wonderful guest. Definitely has my wheels turning. Hopefully our listeners' wheels are turning as we keep on trucking uh, towards uh, the completion <laughs> nice. of, of this, uh, this conversation. David, uh, really wonderful having you on the show. Thanks again for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Mike. Awesome. And our listeners, uh, this was a wonderful uh, installation of Trending in Education like you're used to. We'll be back again uh, regular time uh, very soon. Thanks again for listening.